Um, now, there we go. We're live. Uh, y'all know Scott. Um, yes. uh, he is our uh, <laughs> resident joke teller, dad joke teller. Um, but Scott, uh, we've got a picture up here. Tell us a little bit about your family. Yeah, so this is my mother and father's wedding. Um, this fairly old picture, not to date myself. But over <laughs> on the left side, you'll see uh, my left. You'll see her parents, uh, Mario and Dorothy Paola. So big Italian family. Um, definitely have some... Uh, Pasta recipes that we always ate pasta when we went over there for some reason. Obviously, I'm, Mario Paola. I'm a little intrigued by Paola. Yeah. That just sounds like you come from some... <laughs> some Italian, big, yeah, big, big Catholic family, for sure. Paola. I mean, that just sounds yeah. wealthy. And that's on... <laughs> it's, it's not, but so the, the house they lived in was actually the same community Ronald Reagan's ranch is in. Wow. And they're like three miles. Uh, they're both passed away now, but three miles from where Michael Jackson's home is as well. Wow. So wow. interesting valley out there. And yeah. that's where my mom grew up. On my dad's side, um, we have Dagny, his, his mom, and his dad, Jalmer, which he's the only person I've ever known by that name, Anderson. So kind of Norwegian So you know someone background. else named Dagny? Dagny. Wow. <laughs> Interesting. So uh, they are from Idaho, big potato farmers. Um, out there. So every holiday we would have what's called lefsa, which since we're doing uh, kind of a bread series, mm -hmm. it, it's kind of a potato flatbread. Um, interesting book, the tools that they use. There's pictures in here of guys making lefsa that would cover this stage. Um, and it's tasty, but we had it like at Easter and Christmas and because you, you have to know how to make stuff out of potatoes if you're a potato farmer. That's what a paella does. <laughs> well, oh, Anderson. Uh, wrong family. Anderson, yes. Ah. <laughs> wrong family. I wasn't listening. <laughs> I don't know how many potatoes grow in like Italy, but um, probably some. Yeah, uh, but this is my background, uh, obviously, where my family comes from. I grew up in, on the West Coast. Um, so Arkansas is not my home. I joke around and tell people a force moved me here, and that was the Air Force. Yeah, the Air Force <laughs> did. You definitely did. So, you know, as I think I know a little bit more about you and because I know some of your history, and that's also true for me as well. When I understand my own history more, I understand me more. Uh, so let me give you a little bit of my history. So here comes my parents. Uh, that's both of those are my dad there. Um, so my parents were born during the Great Depression, and they were born uh, in Oklahoma, just below where the Dust Bowl was. So it was pretty pretty massively hit by the Depression, and so that impacted. Everything my parents decided about money, everything they decided about uh, family and about things, um, it just impacted everything. And as I understand that, I understand my parents more. Uh, it just gives me a better understanding of why they did some of the things that they did. Um, and so if I go through life understanding my parents more, understanding what they went through, what they experienced then those experiences they had are also part of my own history now. Um, so if I don't consider what they went through, what they lived through, what they experienced, if I don't do that, then I'm going to miss out knowing some things about my history, about my family. In other words, I, I would not understand why um, uh, uh, Several hundred years ago, uh, a Dutch aristocrat's son left 
his country and left his family and he left his title behind and he came over to the Americas. I wouldn't understand why all that happened. I wouldn't understand about my relatives who fought in the Revolutionary War. I wouldn't understand about how the Civil War impacted my family and how uh, both sides on my parents, both of their families ran in the Oklahoma land rush. I would not understand any of that or know any of that. And that means I wouldn't understand myself completely either. So it seems to me to understand today better, we have to understand yesterday better, what happened and why things happened. Now, I know that's not a new concept for us. I, I, I know that. But when you take that same concept and you apply that same concept to the family of God, well, that's pretty cool. Because if you apply that, the, the history of God and his chosen people, the Israelites, by the way, which that family, the Israelites, is a family that if you're a follower of Jesus, you have been adopted into that family. And so the same thing is true there. If we really want to understand Jesus, we really want to understand God, then we have to understand, or we need to, understand our adoptive family's history. So what we're doing today, we're going to learn more about the family so that we can better understand the Father. Because let's face it, there are so many things about Jesus that just kind of leave us like saying, ah, this doesn't make sense to me. There's some muddy spots. There's some spots that maybe scare us a little bit. We're like, I don't know if I want to go there. Because I, I, for me, I grew up being taught things about God. And um, so I heard it and I just kind of accepted it. That's what we do when we're young. We hear things, we we accept it as fact, but then we get a little older and sometimes we begin to question that. We look back on some things. We're like, uh, that didn't make sense to me now as an adult. Um, it, it doesn't really make sense to me how that works. We might ask questions like, well, why did Jesus say that? Why did Jesus do that? Or why did the people respond to him in a certain way? And those questions go on and on and on. And so anyone else, I, I'm assuming I'm probably not alone in that. Maybe you have experienced some of those questions as well. And our problem is often, though, with those questions that we just don't understand enough about our adoptive family's history. And so that history impacts Jesus and the way he did things. And that history impacts um, the way scripture was written and what was recorded, which leads us to a lot of questions. And it can lead to a lot of misunderstandings. Um, and honestly, it could lead to us missing out on some really, really cool things that God has done, and he did some things intentionally throughout history. And so for many of us, there are some things that we talk about today that might make some other things for you make a little more sense, simply because we're going to do our best to, uh, to, to understand kind of the big picture a little better about what's going on. We're going to do our best to kind of see how some things happened, that God just planned it a certain way, according to a certain time, and according to a certain plan. And we're going to accomplish, try to, 
all of that by just simply looking at some family history today where there has traditionally for us been a bit of a gap. And so that leads us to a question. Why in the world do we have today such a gap in our Jewish family history? Where does that come from? So Scott is going gonna, is gonna to jump in and try to help us get a better understanding of where that gap comes from. Yeah, those are, those are all gr- great questions. I know that uh, as I read the Bible, I, I think about the context of when it was written, you know, each, each part of it. And then understanding not just the Jewishness of it, but also like when it was written, what was going on in the world at that time. But when we look at the Jewishness of Jesus, we see a lot of the information gaps, right? And we can blame a lot of that on the, the Renaissance, the Reformation, the Enlightenment periods uh, of the Middle Ages. And that was not so long ago, right? And for the reason of these were like written out of history is, is simple. It was racism. And yeah, I mean, which sounds weird. Which sounds weird, but it but it was racism. Christian, Christian racism. Racism because they, the leaders at the time believed that they needed to wipe out Jewishness, uh, basically because the Jews are the ones that killed Jesus, um, and they wanted to cut ties, and they tried to eliminate all of the Jewishness of Jesus, which is hard for me to say. Jewishness of <laughs> Jewishness Jesus. of Jesus, and the Jewishness of many of the early followers, because after all, from their perspective, it was the Jews that that killed Jesus. So all Jewish things became bad, uh, and they tried to leave it behind and forget about you know that that's just the way things were at the time. And they were pretty successful, unfortunately. Uh, as a result, the separation from, from Jewish family tradition still lingers today. And, and we're going to see that as we, as we discuss some things this morning. Uh, it's created confusion, and it's unneeded. Most non-Jewish followers outside Israel, at least, um, just like us, because we're not in Israel, um, have very little understanding of the Jewishness of Jesus, which, again, yes. is hard to say. Uh, <laughs> we have even uh, less understanding of the importance that Jewishness plays in our adoptive family history. I just want to take a moment to say I am so glad you got all the Jewishness, Jewishness. statements in this It teaching. seems like it was repeated, <laughs> uh, which means <laughs> there's some gaps in our understanding of Jesus and in scripture. This applies to me and, and to Harley. I know for sure me. Yeah, me too. And so this morning, as we talk about the Jewishness <laughs> of Jesus, um, we're going to invite you into the bakery once again. Can you smell it? Mmm, smells good. <laughs> so we're in doing so, we're going to try to understand some of this history, some of this family history, because as we understand that more, I believe that we will understand Jesus more. And as we understand Jesus more, I believe we can love him more. As we love him more, we will follow him more. As we follow him more, we will become more like him. And as we become more like him, we actually at the same time are becoming more like our true selves the way he created us to be. So we're going to simply invite you this morning into the bakery. Let's go.
So timelines could help me understand things a little bit. Uh, so in the beginning, God, right? And then somewhere along the way, Adam and Eve jump into the picture. And I think you can see some of that on the screen. There they are. Um, things are good until they aren't. And then they get progressively worse. Yeah. That's the history <laughs> of the world. <laughs> Absolutely. Right Enter Noah. Uh, then around somewhere between 2000 and 1900 B.C., uh, we were introduced to a new name. That name was Abram, uh, a.k.a. also known as Abraham. A man who the three major religions yeah. of the world are, are based on or kind of link their heritage yeah. back to. We don't have time to dive into all that, but Judaism, Islam, and Christianity all fall back to Abram. Mm -hmm. um, and it is with Abraham that God enters into an agreement. Uh, you've probably heard it called a covenant. Uh, it is this covenant that God is going to fulfill himself with no help from Abraham, right? Or anyone else. This covenant is contingent upon God alone. And there are three basic parts. Uh, God tells Abram, uh, I'll make you into a great nation of people and I'll make your name great. Two, I'll bless those that bless you and curse those that curse you. And three, I'll bless the entire world as a result of you. And guess what? It happened. Mm -hmm. We move forward a few decades, and Abraham has a son named Isaac. And Isaac has twin sons named Esau and Jacob. Jacob, whose name will be changed to Israel. And Jacob has 12 sons. Israel, also known as. <laughs> a large family that finds itself in a series of coincidental, or, or not, um, circumstances taking them to Egypt. And that's where they're a resident for uh, and, and then become enslaved for 400 years. Call it an incubation period. Uh, after or during that 400-year period, period, Israel uh, grew into that family of 12 into a nation, a multitude of individuals, until at just the right time, God raises someone else, and his name was Moses, which most of you have probably heard of to deliver them from their enslavery in Egypt. Yeah. So, anybody taking notes? Yeah. <laughs> That's a long history, but I, 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 to me, it helps to kind of identify where we are in the process. So, here's kind of where we are. Soon after uh, Israel leaves Egypt, they don't have any laws of their own because they were slaves. They were a slave nation. They had no codes, no laws, so God gives them his law. Um, and God enters now into a second covenant with Israel. But this one is different. This covenant actually has some stipulations for Israel. And here's kind of the way God presented the covenant. He was like, Israel, if you obey my law, I'll take care of you. And he said, but if Israel, you disobey my law, then you are going to have problems. Israel listens to the covenant, and they're like, okay, we're in. Sign me up. I'm a, I want to be a part of this covenant. Let's do it, God. Let's do it. And they do, and God tries to guide them toward his law over and over again by using, um, he uses uh, judges, and he uses prophets, and he uses kings. And sometimes Israel is following the law, Many times in their history, they are not following the law. And so over and over and over again, they break this covenant with God. And around 400 BC, 400 years, 
before it hits year zero, <laughs> um, something interesting happens. God goes silent, and Israel does not hear another peep from God for 400 years. Right. But then, in a tiny little town called Bethlehem, you've probably heard that before, during the reign of Caesar Augustus, uh, God is silent no more. Uh, God puts on flesh of humanity, and Jesus is on the scene. Yeah, so let's go back, though, to that pesky law for just a minute. Because according to the law that God gave Israel, God set up seven feasts, all right? Seven festivals, celebrations for his people. So these are kind of times to celebrate certain things, remember certain things. Um, but they're more than that because they're not just pointing back to the past. They're also pointing towards the future. These seven feasts are also pointing toward the work of the Messiah. Uh, as Jesus named him, called himself the Son of Man, the bread of life, all of these things pointed to Jesus. Right, and, and, and here's what Jesus said on the subject. In John 5, you'll find it. You search the scriptures. Jesus is speaking of the old covenant scriptures um, where the law is contained, that, that Harley was just talking about it. Uh, because you think they give you eternal life, but the scriptures point to me. Pretty clear, right? Uh, what about this one in, in Luke 24? Then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets explaining from all the scriptures, again, the old covenant scriptures, uh, the things concerning himself. This is a great quote from a Jewish believer uh, on the significance of these statements. <laughs> he said, the, question in the, old the questions in the Old Testament are often answered in the New Testament. So the Bible is a book that the answers are in the back. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> so, uh, which is this way of understanding it. So to understand our current our scriptures, which is the new covenant, we need to have a better understanding of the Jesus' scriptures because at the time, he didn't have the new covenant. Right. He was the new covenant. Mm -hmm. um, Jesus' scriptures are the old covenant. Because of those scriptures, the old covenant, they illuminate ours, the new covenant, while our scriptures the new covenant clarify his. Yeah. Now, I hope you're kind of intrigued by all this because, well, that's what we're talking about today. That's so right. I hope you are. So let me start us off with a bit of Jewish history very quickly. Um, it, it is that the Jewish New Year is very important, but it doesn't happen in January like ours. No. Their New Year, and it's called, um, <clears throat> we're going to say that we probably will miss this a few uh, times today. Won't. It's called uh, their New Year month is called Nissen. I remember that because it rhymes with kissing. <laughs> Literally, that's how I remember it. So um, it's the Jewish month of Nissen, and it happens somewhere around our March and April. And so the one interesting thing, those seven feasts that God mandates in his law for Israel, three of the seven happen during one week of that first month of the Jewish year. So it happens very early. Right. And, and the very first one of those seven feasts is the Feast of Passover. This feast has a specific numerical date in which, uh, according to God's law, uh, this, feast, this feast begins, like Harley was saying, on the 14th day of the first month, Nissan, 
and I'm probably going to mispronounce that as well. Uh, with Passover, we talk about uh, we talked about that at the beginning of this month. So you can go back if you haven't seen that that sermon. Yeah. You can do it. And here's where God instituted this in Leviticus 23. The Lord's Passover begins at sundown on the 14th day of the first month. Yes. So now these three feasts, um, the one key thing to remember about them is that in Scripture, sin is often represented metaphorically by yeast or leaven. And so at the Passover, uh, the bread that they used, and Scott brought us some today, the bread that they used at Passover um, was unleavened bread always. Um, so with this metaphor being that this bread unleavened, it would be as if it were sinless bread. That's kind of the picture, bread without sin. And so remember that God instituted this law and these seven festivals um, about 1,300 years before Jesus showed up on, on earth. And so also... Uh, in this one week of this new year, um, we showed you kind of uh, how they celebrated some of the Passover. Um, and we talked about how Jesus celebrated that with his disciples. And in the, in the New Covenant, it uh, is often called the Last Supper. You've heard of that. And it sounds familiar to us because it's from that where we get the Lord's Supper, where we get communion. And so if we were to jump back for just a moment and think about that time that Jesus was there with his disciples that night celebrating the Passover, just hours before he was going to be arrested, Jesus is not doing something new with his disciples. They had celebrated Passover year after year after year after year. And so that's what they're doing this night. But at a very specific time, that's what Je Jesus isn't doing something new. He's saying something new. So at a very specific time, Jesus took a very, there were three pieces of bread used. Jesus takes a very specific piece of bread. Um, and so it's this unleavened bread, in other words, kind of metaphorically sinless bread. And he said, from now on, when you get to this piece of bread during the Passover, he says, from now on, this bread, he says, is going to represent me. So it represents Jesus from now on. This piece of bread represents Jesus. And he said, uh, uh, as he's breaking this bread, he says, my uh, sinless body, this in essence, my body is represented in this. So the bread was sinless, Jesus was sinless, and he's saying that I'm going to be broken for you. Right. <clears throat> and during the Passover, uh, the metaphor of this specific piece of bread that now represents the body of Jesus, the bread is broken. Yeah, I'm going to break he's it. He's going to do it right now. It was wrapped and hidden away during that, that feast. Mm -hmm. Just like the body of Jesus was broken for us as he died, he was wrapped in linen and he was hidden away in the tomb. Yeah. That's cool. Yes. Jesus was saying that specific piece of bread during Passover represents my body. Yes. And so I hope this is interesting to you because this is part of the history that has been lost. So now remember what happened. So the bread, we talked about this. And if you missed that first week of this series, please go back and watch it. It's a, it's a, 
uh, there's visuals that go along with it. But so we have a, a scaled down version here today. So remember what happened. So the bread was wrapped and the father would kind of hide it. He'd put it behind his seat or something like that. And then he would bring it back out and he would unwrap the bread during the Passover. He would unwrap the bread, the piece that was broken. He would bring it out of hiding, unwrap it, and he would take that bread um, and then knowing that the unleavened bread, that's what is represented here, sinless bread representing Jesus. He takes it out of hiding just as if, or, or as a picture really of what was getting ready to happen for Jesus as he went, uh, as he died, his body was broken for us. As he went in the tomb, it was hidden, buried, and then uh, and then he comes out. The, so the father's opening this. He comes out. And Jesus did that that night of the Passover. Yeah. And that's the piece that he said, hey, this represents my body. But there's more. Right. And during that same Passover uh, banquet or feast, I should say, he picked up a specific cup of wine. Mm -hmm. And that's we have a, a prop up here with a, a, a wine cup um, that represents Jesus's blood that was spilled for you. Translation, Jesus, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, went to the cross and died as the Passover lamb for the entire world. Now today, regarding the Feast of Passover, we are saying the Passover feast is all a picture of the work of Jesus, right? And all the feasts point to him because all the laws of the old covenant scriptures that I mentioned earlier point to him. And we can say that because he said, because that's what he said. He said, you, in John 5, you search the scriptures. Jesus is speaking again of the old, the old covenant scripture where the law is contained, which contains all like information about all seven feasts, because you think they give you eternal life, but the scriptures point to me. The very next day, uh, begins the second feast. And that is the feast of unleavened, unleavened bread. Again, a specific numerical date is given for this one. The very next day after the feast of Passover, the body of Jesus was hidden away in the tomb. Now the feast of unleavened bread begins. And we can see this in Leviticus 23. On the next day, the 15th day of the month of Nisus, Nisan, sorry, yeah. I told you I was going to screw it up. It's all right. <laughs> you, you must begin celebrating the festival of unleavened bread. This festival to the Lord continues for seven days. During that time, the bread you eat must be made without yeast. Yeah. So Jewish families, they prepared for this feast, for the Feast of Unleavened Bread and for the Feast of Passover. They prepared at the same time because they happened almost like back to back, they back to back, literally. And so, um, so remember, if yeast represents sin, so this would be unleavened, that would be representing sinless bread. Um, they had to get rid of all the yeast that was in all the leaven that was in the house. And now uh, Israel was not forbidden from eating bread that had risen or bread that had yeast in it all the time. Um, they it, Only during certain times of the year, this was one of those times. And I'm sure they enjoyed rolls just like I do. Yeah. Because, you know, Jews have rolls too, <laughs> not just me. And so we know rolls lead to rolls. And so I've just summarized my entire diet. Um, but we know they, they, 
enjoyed it. But during this time, it was, so it was forbidden during this time to have any yeast in the house at all. And so uh, they would get rid of all the yeast, all the leaven out of the house completely. Um, and it's kind of a picture of before these feasts start, as they're getting rid of all that yeast, all the, the leaven, it's, it's kind of a picture, a metaphor of removing all the sin out of the house before that time began. Right. And, and Jewish people today are still do this, right? Yeah. It's like spring cleaning with a vengeance. Uh, you would, they would purge all the crumbs, all the leaven out of the house. Uh, they'd wash everything. They'd scrub the walls. They'd, they'd clean the ceilings, the floors, the furniture, uh, all the, the cookware, the utensils. Uh, in fact, many Jewish families have multiple sets of cookware, right? Because they have clean and unclean, um, so meat and dairy, that they use every day, and then they would have two more sets for uh, utensils, both dairy and meat, that would never touch leaven, ever, and it would be used during this week. Uh, Paul even talks about this feast uh, and makes a reference to the cleaning in 1 Corinthians. Uh, Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you are, <laughs> as you really are unleavened, for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. We talked about how that passage does not roll off the tongue. No, it does not. It does <laughs> Lots not. of lumps. It's a lumpy passage. It's a lumpy passage. Yeah. All the Jewish families would clean out uh, all the leaven from their house. Uh, the fathers would even make games out of it, right? They would use a feather and a wooden spoon uh, that have significance in a, in a video I watched online about it. Uh, the father, uh, once it's all purged, they're ready to celebrate the feast of Passover. The very next day, right into the second feast, right? The feast of unleavened bread. That second feast lasted a week. For one week, they only, they only ate pure unleavened bread. Yeah. Now, um, so this feast, the second feast, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, also pointed to the life of Jesus. And you know, after Jesus died, he, him referring to himself for us as an example is the bread of life. So his sinless body, which would be like the unleavened bread, was wrapped, it was placed in a tomb, and he was buried on the exact day that the Feast of Unleavened Bread began. That's not a coincidence. I was Jesus, our unleavened bread, our sinless life was buried at the beginning of the feast of unleavened bread. Right. So uh, I, we're going back to the crucifixion. So the typical death on a Roman cross was not quick. In fact, it was, that was kind of the point, right? Yeah. It, was, it was slow. It was horrible for the person that was dying. But also, the Romans wanted the impact on the townspeople that might be walking past the, the crosses. Um, they wanted a lasting mental impact for them. Yeah, right? which to make, I'm sure it did. To, I'm sure it yeah. did. And kind yeah. of teaching them not to break the law. Yeah. Uh, normally, it would take days to die on the cross, sometimes like three or four, sometimes up to a week. Uh, but with Jesus, it was different. He died quickly. And, and why, why do you think Jesus died so fast on the cross? Yeah, that's, you know, I, I, I have to just kind of think and speculate, I, I believe it's because Jesus had to keep the festivals. Yeah. 
He was a he was an upstanding perfect Jew and the festivals were happening and and all of these festivals pointed towards him. So it's kind of as if he's on the cross and well he has a calendar to keep. So he has to be dead within right. a, a, an amount of time. Um, he couldn't just hang there for days on end. And so he's on the cross at 9 a.m. on the Passover day. And he dies on the same day, the Passover day. He dies by 3 o'clock, which is plenty of time for them to get him down off the cross, to get his body wrapped, to get him prepared, and to get him placed in the tomb just as the festival of unleavened bread is beginning. And I, I believe that was part of God's plan, that it's all in God's timing. And then, and then right on the heels of this is the third festival. Now, this isn't going to make a lot of sense. We would ha we'd have to spend a little time here, but I just want to mention this third festival's timing. Here's the timing. It was always held on the Sunday following the Sabbath that falls during the festival of unleavened bread. And this festival is called the, uh, the Feast of First, First fruits. fruits. Yes, right. sir. And you can, you can read more about this, or it's, it's talked about in Leviticus 23. Bring the priest a bundle of grain from the first cutting of your grain harvest. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest will lift it up before the Lord, so it may be accepted on your behalf. As part of this celebration, the Jews would bring a handful of their, their first crops, their early crops, and present them in the temple. Uh, we wait and to be waved before the Lord. Yeah, kind of. A, uh, they called it a, a wave offering. Yeah, right. Sounds weird. These, but... these first fruits were given <laughs> to the to God first because it was their understanding that they would have a second and third harvest soon to follow that would be more plentiful. Plentiful. Uh, this was always this always happened on the first Sunday mm -hmm. during the, these feasts, uh, and Jesus fulfilled this festival with his life too. Now look at this in, in Luke 22. Um, I think it's on your screen, maybe not. Uh, but very early on Sunday morning, Luke reminds us Jesus was walking out of the tomb early on the Sunday morning uh, on the Feast of Fruits. Here's another way Jesus described what was going to happen to him, and it fits perfectly into these feasts, soon before Jesus was arrested. And that's in John 12. And Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, Jesus is comparing himself to the, to the grain that, bre that bread is made from. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. I'm going to die. Yeah, that's what he's like saying. Like Passover. Mm -hmm. And my sinless body buried, like the feast of unleavened bread. So that, so that this is what can come next. But if he dies, he bears much fruit. And Jesus was that grain, was Jesus, that grain was buried and walked out of the tomb alive as the first fruit offering of God, right on time as the first, uh, as the feast of first fruits yeah. began. Yeah. So that's th this amazing picture. And so we know that early on that Sunday morning, on the day that God had instructed all of Israel to remember God on their first fruits with the feast of first 
fruits. Jesus walks out of the tomb alive. Now, this is crazy to me. According to Matthew, we can find that in Matthew chapter 27. On that day, which was the feast of first fruits, and Jesus walked out of the tomb alive, there were some other graves opened on that same day. There were some other people who rose from the dead. Man, that's just, I, I, as I was a child, I guess I just overlooked that completely. I don't know how many times that's the, the, that story that was read to me and how many times I read it, but I just overlooked that. And because it, it would have scared you for a while. It would have probably, <laughs> yeah, absolutely it would have scared me. And as I'm thinking about that, I, 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 I'd be like, okay, wow, that's weird. And maybe I just moved on, put it out of my head, and I just ignored it somehow. But I think... It's possible that we find the answer right here in this feast of first fruits. Because Jesus, keeping all of these feasts, just like every other good Jewish person was doing, Jesus, on the day he walks out of the tomb as the first fruit, then offers as an offering to God some of his harvest of first fruits. A crop that will one day be magnificent and it's to come. And guess what? I'm going to be a part of that. Yeah. Scott's going to be a part of that. If, if you're a follower of Jesus, you are going to be a part of that harvest as well. Jesus, the kernel of wheat, was placed in the ground dead. And at the appropriate moment, God rose him, gave him life again, and he walked out of that tomb right on schedule with the feast. About 1,300 years before Jesus ever stepped foot on this earth, God had said, do this every year. Scott read it in Leviticus. He said, bring the priest a bundle of grain from the first cutting of your grain harvest. And on that day, after the Sabbath, which would be the Sunday, the priest will lift up before the Lord, so it, uh, lift it up for the Lord, so it may be accepted on your behalf. And early on that Sunday morning, Jesus was lifted up, deemed acceptable by God as the sacrifice of the world, for you and for me. And now, if you follow him, you will be a part of that harvest to come. I know many of you will. The life of Jesus, God pictured in the feasts. 1,300 years before Jesus ever stepped foot on this earth and God used them as a picture how Jesus would show up and begin completing those feasts. And so we have Jesus, our Passover lamb who died on Passover. We have Jesus, our unleavened bread who was placed in the tomb at the feast of unleavened bread. And we have Jesus, the first fruits, who walked out of the tomb. So here's our takeaway today. I don't believe anything is left to chance. 
I don't believe any of this is a coincidence. I believe that it has been a part of God's plan from the very beginning. And it's part of all the things that he has planned and he has timed out perfectly. And so here's what we want to say. Knowing our family history is going to help the rest of our lives make more sense. Let's pray. Jesus, you are the bread of life. Jesus, you are that grain of wheat that was buried in the tomb. Jesus, you are that one who came out of the tomb alive. And God, how you orchestrated that in your perfect timing, in your perfect way. God, thank you for not hiding your metaphors and your pictures of your work. Thank you for not hiding those from us. And God, I just pray. I pray that we would be encouraged to get to know you and the history that you have created so that we can understand you better. Because the more we know you, the more we understand you, the more we'll love you. And the more we love you, the more we can follow you. And the more we follow you, the more that we will become like you. And Jesus, the more we become like you, the more we become like ourselves, the way you created, designed us to be. May that be the case for our lives. In the name of Jesus, we pray these things. Amen.